it's actually quite bizarre how you could go through such a dark period and not know you were going through something so dark until you get on the other side and you reflect back and you say, that was a challenging time for me. I was really struggling. Everything I did was like a red flag that something was off. This summer, for one of the Assyrian podcast team check-ins, one of the things we discussed was what guests we would want to have returned to the podcast for a second interview. Even before I knew this would be a question we would discuss, I had my answer. I knew that there was more to my friend Asherin Areem than what we had uncovered in a previous episode, so I couldn't be more excited to welcome her back to the podcast. Hey everyone, it's Rhoda, and I'm so glad to be back with you for episode 150 of the Assyrian Podcast. For episode 70, my fellow co-host Ninorta sat down with Nicole Shamoon and Dr. Asherin Arim to talk about drug addiction after the tragic loss of Nicole's brother shook the Assyrian community in Arizona. Asherina had a lot of insight to share about addiction based on her experiences as a clinical psychologist. And if you have not listened to that episode, I highly recommend you go back and do so. But for today's episode, I knew I wanted to focus on Asherina's day-to-day job and her experiences as a mom and a clinical psychologist and how those experiences led her to create Psyched Mommy pages on social media, where she has amassed a following of about 461,000 on Instagram alone at the time of this recording in September of 2021. She has created this community by sharing her experiences with a variety of pregnancy and fertility, lost postpartum and motherhood content that is not sugar-coated and it's very much authentic. It speaks to the experience of mothers around the world and even just those who know and love a mother somewhere, which brings me to my next point. Yes, most of the content of this episode might be more helpful to all of our mom listeners, but if you've ever loved anyone who's a mom or a parent yourself or hope to be one one day, then I think there's a lot to gain from Asherina's perspective as insight, so I would still encourage you to listen to this interview. We talked about everything from the trauma she experienced with her miscarriages and infertility struggles, the challenges of postpartum depression, and what it means to successfully communicate with your partner when bringing home a baby completely and suddenly changes the relationship dynamic, and so, so much more. For more on any and all of these topics, check out Asherina's pages on Instagram or Facebook. We will link them in the show notes. Side note, Asherina and I briefly mentioned her brother, who was also a guest of the podcast on episode 75, It's a great conversation with Asher about their upbringing and their parents, and I encourage you to listen to that too. Before we get to the interview, support for this week's episode of the Assyrian Podcast is brought to you by Tony Caligaracos and the Injury Lawyers of Illinois and New York. If you know anyone that's been in a serious accident, please reach out to Tony Caligaracos. Tony has been recognized as a top 40 lawyer and a rising star by Super Lawyers Publication and has obtained multiple multi-million dollar awards. Tony can be reached at InjuryRights.com or 847-982-9516. This episode is also sponsored by the Oshana Partners, a husband and wife real estate team. If you are considering purchasing a home or selling a home in Arizona or California, then Rita and John are available to help make your next real estate decision into a seamless transaction. 
Contact the Ashanas at 209-968-9519. Get to know them a bit more by checking out their website, theashanapartners.com. And now, here is Psyched Mommy herself, Dr. Asherina Reed. Asherina, welcome back to the Assyrian Podcast. It's good to have you. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to be back. I wanted to have you back because the last time you were here, the topic of the conversation was a little different than the things that you do day to day. And I wanted to bring you back so we could talk about your work and the things that you do and learn a little bit more about you. And also, I really enjoy talking to you. So I just wanted to introduce you. Well, thank you. I enjoy talking to you too. (laughs) So... I interviewed your brother a couple of years ago, and we got to hear a little bit about your family living in Michigan, moving to Arizona, and your parents. And so what I'd love to hear about is teenager, Asherina. What were you like as a teenager? Oh, man. Where do we, un- where do we start to unpack this? <laughs> I, teenager, Asherina, I was the doer of all things. I was a very busy teen. I was probably involved in every activity that you can think of at school. I played sports. I was quirky and artistic. I loved the arts. So I was into theater. I was into like band and poetry and all of these things. I read a lot. (laughs) My My brother and I were so opposite growing up. So it's, yeah, you could find me reading a book or doing those things, but teen, teen me got along with just about everybody. And I feel like I, like in high school, even growing up in middle school, high school, I belonged to like, I didn't belong to like one social group. I was part of all of the groups and I don't know. I think I was definitely had some flares of perfectionism back then. I like to think of myself as a recovering perfectionist. So that, that's probably kind of who I was back then. I don't know. It's probably more artsy. I honestly, if you went back and asked some people, they would, I feel like it would be interesting to see their perspective, but I was really into going to shows, watching productions, reading books, listening to music, performing somehow. But that was kind of my thing back then. Didn't you want to major in theater at some point? Yes. The glory. Of being a Syrian. No, I was, uh, I loved theater and I was in advanced theater and had the opportunity to go on at Eastern Michigan for a scholarship to be part of their theater department. And um, my parents were not on board with that because theater was not like a, a, that's not a program of study that an accomplished person should do. And my mom kept asking, you know, like, you're never going to get a job. How are you going to work? How are you going to make a living for yourself? And uh, it really steered me away. And it was hard because I didn't have the support of my family to do something that I truly did love. And I got really scared. You know, you're young, you're making these big life decisions. And you feel like if I don't have the support, then, you know, maybe I'm just not making a good decision. Maybe this isn't the rational decision to make. So I um, really changed course heading into college because of the, the fears that I had about what was out there, what wasn't out there, if I were to pursue that as a career. So how did you settle on what you wanted to study in college? 
I did what any good Assyrian girl does. And I did exactly what my parents wanted me to do. That's what I, <laughs> and I say that partially joking, but partially not. So I went into um, undergrad and I was a pre-med major. I was a pre, like I was a biology uh, major and I was studying. I thought like, I'll become a physician or I'll become a pharmacist, something respectable. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, I recognized after taking several classes that this was not my passion. This was not something I was going to live a life of passion of doing. I, I'm sure I would have loved been a, like to been a theater teacher. I probably would have really thoroughly enjoyed that. So I went into school and had my eyes set on doing something that would give me a good career. And by my sophomore year, I was taking quite a few abnormal psychology courses. I was looking into theories of personality and I thought psychology just seems so fascinating. I'm really fascinated. And I had this professor, Dr. Drescher, and he was so, he was like such a big part of my, my decision-making process and his influence on my life was tremendous. So I was shadowing him. He was helping me get internships. I was taking more classes in psychology than I found myself taking in the sciences. But what I, I chose to do was I ended up double majoring in biology and psychology. So I picked up psychology as a second major because um, I thought it'd be the right thing to do. I didn't want to, you know, completely forgo the, <laughs> the, the expectation or the dream. And that's how I like rounded out undergrad. So I was really unsure about what I was going to do. I was kind of nervous and scared. I took some time off to serve. And I, that was also something that was like not. It was just not something my parents had ever envisioned me doing. But I became a server at a local restaurant and I had a blast, got to meet a lot of cool people. And I think in the process of taking the time to just work and explore life and connect with other people, I started to figure out if I were going to make this you know, big decision, if I was going to take a next step, what would that look like for me? And I found myself leaning towards psychology. It's like I couldn't see myself being a physician. I couldn't see myself... Uh, you know, being a pharmacist, I actually went to a local hospital. I volunteered there for so long in their pharmacy department. I'm like, I could not do this. I will never do this. This is not my personality. And I had to like break the news to my parents. I remember and my, they didn't talk to me for a few months. They were upset. I was like, I'm going to become a psychologist. This is what I'm going to do. And they were like, what? That's, I, why would you do that? You know, they were just very unaware of the field, the profession, you know, what, what it could offer. And I think they, I mean, I know that if it's all comes with good intention, right? Our parents want the best for us. They just know what they know and they love me dearly. They want me to have a great life and they want me to be, you know, successful. And the worries come from the questioning of, are you going to be successful? Are you going to make a life for yourself? So I totally get it. And I, I joke about it, but I totally understand the, the place that, that the concern comes from. And that's when I decided I was going to become a psychologist. And I was like, I don't care who's upset with me in this decision. Um, and that I started applying for to graduate schools. Was there something about the time that you uh, were working as a server and like meeting different kinds of people that made you even more interested in just how human beings behave and how our brains work, if you will. Yeah, you know, the I have always been fascinated my whole life with people's stories. 
it's not, it's just like, I love to know people's stories. And sometimes even now earlier in my life, I would love, I like love to look in a room and pretend like I knew everyone's story where I'm like, I wonder, you know, what kind of struggles this person has experienced. I wonder what led them to make that decision or how this came about. So I've always been fascinated with people. I've always been fascinated with connecting with people. So I never saw myself as like a pharmacist or a physician, although like those things were uh, career options I was considering. It was truly my, like my interest, my curiosity. Like I'm like a why person. Like I want to know why, what makes you tick? Why do you make those choices? Why do you do the things you do? Why do you love the things that you love? And how did that come, come to be? And I felt like it was a very natural fit for me. So I started applying. <laughs> I started applying to grad schools. And what happened then? I actually got into a school in Michigan that I had applied to. And it was a, such a challenging process. And very last minute, my brother was living in Arizona. I had visited um, for a few weeks in the summer, which if anybody has been to Arizona in the summer, it's not a desirable location, but something about the sun just being like, we were out in the pool every day and it just felt good to be in a new environment where we were having more sunny days than cloudy days. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and apply to a school out here last minute uh, before I was like slated to start the, the next semester in Michigan the upcoming, I mean, the enrollment of the program. And then I thought, I'm going to apply last minute. I applied and I got a call and they wanted me to come and interview. And I thought, wow, this is crazy. So I had to go back to Arizona for an interview for the graduate school program and did the interview, left so nervous. I thought this, it, the program started in two weeks after that interview. So it was like the last spot they had. I left the interview and they called me and they were like, we wanted to offer you a position in our program. And I was like, oh my gosh, I can't even believe this. Right. And I had a big decision to make and I didn't know, do I stay in Michigan? Right. Like, this is my life. This is where I've grown up. Everything I know is here. My parents were there and uh, I made a very big decision to move to Arizona and be on my own at 24. I mean, I'd been on my own before but really on my own. And it was the best decision for me. It, it truly was. Did you have a focus when like, when you started graduate school, was there a thing that you were gonna focus on that you had decided you would focus on? Oh yes, it's funny. It's just funny to think back what, what we think we know. <laughs> I was, so if you are in a doctoral program in the field of psychology, they have you do like, so many rotations. And I was fascinated with uh, forensic psychology, which is a lot of like the legal cases. And I was working at the time in the jail system and the prison system. And I was doing a lot of evaluations for risk. And I really found it fascinating. Again, I was trying to understand people and see why they do the things they do. So I really enjoyed that. And I also enjoyed um, neuropsychology, which is very assessment heavy. You're testing people, you're evaluating them. For example, if someone has um, an attention deficit, you're evaluating them to see if it's a truly an attention issue or if it's something else that's going on, or if there are any learning disabilities or memory impairments, whatever the issue may be. So I was doing a lot of evaluations. And actually, most of my graduate program, I was heavily focused on 
assessments, evaluations, writing reports. And I loved, I loved that work. And I did it for quite some time, really thought that's what I would end up doing. And I'm not, I'm not doing that. <laughs> so, you know, it's interesting to think that we, we only get like such a small piece. Whenever we try something new, whenever we do something new, we always anticipate that we're going to do something a certain way. It's like you only get the first few steps of the staircase, right? And then you do life and you realize, wow, that's not all there was. There was a really steep staircase and now I see it for what it is. So yeah, definitely. I'm not doing that at the moment. So I feel like your work trajectory kind of changed with your journey with motherhood. But before we get to the time when you had Roman, can you talk a little bit about what your journey to motherhood looked like? Yes. I was actually working for a really large healthcare system. I was working at MD Anderson Cancer Center. I was the work I did before I became pregnant, so different than what I'm doing now. And like many women, I was having challenges with fertility. So it's, this is one of those secrets. It's a taboo thing to talk about. We don't talk about it. And we actually don't really talk about it as a Syrian woman. I find that it's challenging because sometimes we're met with invalidating comments or judgments or thoughts. And it's really hard and it can be very isolating. So when I became pregnant for the first time in 2015, I, it was very a welcome surprise. I was so happy. I was over the moon excited and um, my pregnancy ended in miscarriage. And again and again, and it just kept happening to me where I was going through like a spiritual crisis, if I'm being quite honest uh, with you, because I felt like, how could this happen? You know, and that's where I think that when we go through hard things, when we go through challenging times in our lives is when we question, this is the question that came up for me quite often. It's like, how could a loving God allow me to go through this? And I know that it's not just my journey. And I know it's a journey of many. Um, it was something I grappled with and I just didn't know how I was going to make it out on the other side. So I started fertility treatments. I tried several things and I spontaneously became pregnant uh, naturally after taking a break. Cause I was like, I had had enough. I don't want to do this. This is so trying and taxing emotionally, physically, all of these things. I took a break, I became pregnant, but I was disconnected from my pregnancy because I was so scared. I was so scared because in previous pregnancies, like my first pregnancy that ended in miscarriage, I was writing journal entries. I was, you know, documenting this experience. I was full of joy and gratitude. And by the time I was pregnant with my son, I could not go there because I was so scared. I was, you know, you're just waiting for something bad, some bad news to occur. So my anxiety was at an all time high. And then I had a very uh, high risk pregnancy with complications along the way that I ended up in the hospital when I was 15 weeks. They told me I was not going to sustain this pregnancy. And I just felt like my spirit was shattered. And I was living in this bubble of if I even make it to this next, you know, milestone, if I make it to this milestone or that milestone, it was kind of like, I didn't even 
get anything for my um, nursery until I was in the third trimester. And even then it felt like bad luck. I felt like if I get something, I'm going to jinx this. You know, I remember I got to the, I got to 30, it was like 32 weeks. And I thought, okay, well, this is starting to feel real. And I still anxious, but starting to let my guard down a bit starting to, you know, celebrate. I didn't actually share with people. I kind of like isolated if I'm being honest with you. And like, I was waiting and at 38 weeks and three days, my water broke (laughs) and I went to have my son and I got to the hospital. And I just remember this anxiety pumping through my body because I thought something bad is going to happen. Like it just felt that way. And I was just shaking and my husband was there with me and he's like, it's okay. You know, we're good. He was so positive and he was so reassuring. He was so sure that, you know, only good things were going to happen. And I just felt like, well, that's just not how my story has been. So I remember that first cry I heard in the delivery room. I lost it. I lost it because I felt like it washed away so much anxiety I'd held on to for so long. And I'm like, oh, it's happening. It's real. You know, it's so real. And what I didn't realize until much later was that what I had experienced was trauma. It was so much trauma, the trauma of infertility, the trauma of miscarriage, the trauma of a high-risk pregnancy and holding on to so much of that. And the fact that I thought I was going to have this smooth sailing postpartum experience after going through something so challenging still blows my mind. (laughs) It still blows my mind that I thought all is well with the world. I have a baby now. And what I found is that my life, uh, and I'm, I say this and I am not, I don't say it to be harsh or to exaggerate, but it flipped my world upside down. It woke up things inside of me that I didn't even know were there. So yeah, that's a little bit of my journey to have my miracle baby, Roman, it was quite the experience. I've heard you talk about this before. And like, every time you tell the story and you get to the part where you say, and then I heard the first cry and I lost it. All I can think about is like all this weight you were carrying and Mm -hmm. this cry like lifted that weight off of your shoulders in so many different ways. Yeah, it like makes me so emotional every time <laughs> every time you tell that story. I also what strikes me is that like miscarriages, struggles with infertility are so common and I feel like because there is a lack of sharing those stories, all we end up hearing about is pregnancy after pregnancy or successful pregnancies and that, you know, lead to a positive birth story or, or, and things like that. So it's like, we tell ourselves the story that that's all that exists in the world that, so it, it makes people feel isolated because it's like, if that's all exists in the world, then what I'm experiencing must be this like one in a million experience. And it's just not true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> did so you, true. Did you have, did you have people to talk to when you were going through your miscarriages? Like what was that experience like for you? Oh my goodness. It was 
the most challenging part of my life because so during my second pregnancy, it ended in miscarriage, but all of my friends immediately around me were also pregnant. They all went on to have successful pregnancies and I did not. So I had to grieve my loss, but then I had to celebrate in their joy. And there is this misconception, you know, that we should feel joyful and we have to feel joyful and we don't give ourselves space to grieve and we don't allow ourselves the space to have boundaries, to say, you know what, I, I can't, I, I, I'm, I'm grateful for you. I'm happy for you. And I know this is such a blessing for you in your life, but emotionally, I can't do all of these things right now. And I charged on, I pushed on and I did all these things that I, inside, I felt like I was crumbling and then you just put on a brave face and you just go in out, you know, one after another and you celebrate other people. And it's, it's a very painful experience, but I had my husband, honestly, I don't know what I would have done without him because he was a listening ear. I remember, and I talk about this, I wrote a blog on this. He was like, let's go for a drive. And I just remember him like allowing me to unravel. It's what I needed is like, I, I, I was shouting out to God. I remember this, like it was yesterday. Cause it scared me. And I was crying and screaming at the same time. And he was just there. He was there with me holding my hand. And, um, it was a dark, dark time, but he allowed me to unravel. He allowed me to cry. He was there to listen to me without judgment. And even the scary thoughts that you have, you know, when you're saying to somebody, I'm questioning God right now. You know, is his plan perfect? Really? Is it perfect? He didn't say, well, of course it is. You know, why are you thinking that? He was just there with me in the moment and saying, I can see why you feel that way. And that is honestly more than I could have ever asked for. Oh, Mark. <laughs> He's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> so then you get Roman James. And, yeah. you know, you said he was your miracle baby after all of these things that have happened. Yeah. And it's not as smooth sailing. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> they say that babies in utero can sense everything that you feel. Mm -hmm. And there's no doubt about that. When he came out crying, the one of the coolest things that's ever happened in my life is that when they set him on my chest, uh, right immediately after having him, he stopped crying right away. He laid on me in, in, within an instant. And Mark looked at me with like this look, this shock of, wow, this is incredible. I cannot believe it. And I was so thankful. I was so grateful, but I was so scared. So take all of that anxiety I had during my pregnancy. And now it's not focused on what was going on inside of my belly. It was how do I keep you alive? How do I keep you safe? How do I keep, so I don't want anything bad to happen to you. And my anxiety was through the roof. It would keep me up at night. And he was a colicky baby. I'm telling you, like he sensed all of the feelings I had. He was, he experienced like nonstop, he was nonstop crying from the time he would wake up till the time he would go to bed. And that was like that for six months. He rarely slept and I rarely slept. It was such a hard time of, I'm so anxious because I want to keep you safe. 
is there something wrong? Am I doing something wrong? This questioning of myself, but also this feeling of, I must not be doing something right. And I'm actually not enjoying this right now. You know, so I see all these glowing posts of women talking about how beautiful it is and how they can't, <laughs> they don't want this moment to pass or slip by them. And all I thought to myself was, there is something seriously wrong with me because I'm wishing this time away. I want to get to know who I was. I feel lost. I don't know who I am anymore. And my days were just blurred with what I was doing, you know, like nursing him and changing him and trying to console him, trying to figure out why he wouldn't stop crying and looking at best, you know, remedies to help him. And it just went on and on that way for so many, so many months that, I was like at a breaking point. And I, when I look back now, it's actually quite bizarre how you could go through such a dark period and not know you were going through something so dark until you get on the other side and you reflect back and you say, that was a challenging time for me. I was really struggling. And now like I, like everything I did was like a red flag that something was off. And it was a trying time. And I noticed I was depressed. I was anxious. I had very intrusive thoughts about all of the potentially scary things that could happen to him. And I lived my life in fear. Like I didn't want anybody to come to our house because I was scared that he would get sick. I like that, you know, don't come and contaminate my home. Are you sick? Do you have a runny nose? You know, I just got so nervous about everything. I didn't want to ever leave our house because he cried all the time. So when he got in the car, he'd cry. If he got to the store, he would cry and it would make me panic. So it was just a time of, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm a first time mom. I've never done this before. There's no playbook. And no one has ever talked to me about any of this. So I must be the only broken, lost monster of a mom who's going through this. And it was very isolating. And it was honestly, it was one of those things that I felt like it's the first thing in my life. And I, this kind of sounds like arrogant, but it was like the first thing in my life I couldn't figure out. You know, like anything else, you're at a job, they tell you X plus Y equals Z. And you're like, okay, got it. I can do that. I can work really hard at it. This was one of those things I could not figure out for the life of me. And I felt like I was failing miserably. You talked about like your identity and I've heard you talk about, you know, the identity crisis that moms experience after having a baby. You described your teenage self as someone who was just doing all these things and adventures and, you know, someone who's adventurous, who likes to do so many different things. And then here you have a baby who at least for the first six months has put you in a position where you can't do any of those things because you are constantly trying to care for him and help him to stop crying. How did that change your perspective about who you were and how did you deal with those moments where you were like, I don't recognize myself. Who is this person? That's the biggest problem for me is I didn't know who I was. There was, you know, I was adventurous, very spontaneous. And it felt like somebody had cut off my lifeline because I was no longer social. I was no longer connecting with people. I was not let me tell you what, I was not adventurous. That's for sure. I don't think I left my house. I mean, I would go like very quick trips to like the grocery store, wherever it was I needed to go for a walk. 
but it felt like truly like the world was coming down like all around me. I remember a specific event. I remember a specific night. Mark was outside. His mom was in town trying to support us and they were outside having a talk and they were laughing and giggling and joking. And I was sitting on the couch with uh, Roman. He had just closed his eyes. He was taking a little cat nap during the day. And I felt like it was just like this darkness was coming over me because I felt like, oh my goodness, I'm going to be up all night nursing him. I'm all alone. I don't even know. Like, what does it feel like to laugh? They're laughing. Like, I don't have a conversation. I don't even know what to talk about. My body was so foreign to me and it felt like it was just felt like I was experiencing pain everywhere. And I just felt so like lost and like I couldn't find my footing in what I was doing. And it felt like life was going on for everybody else. That's truly what it felt like. Like life is going on for everybody. They're going on and they're having a good old time. They can leave, they can engage, they can sleep. And I was in this moment where everything stood still And it felt like time was like excruciatingly painfully, slowly, like just inching its way by. So how did I manage that? I honestly don't think I was managing it very well. I did start to incorporate just moving my body. Like, so what I would do is like, I knew that he actually at some point started to like his stroller. So I'd start to go for walks. And then I noticed that he only ever liked walks. So I would walk a really long time. Like I'm talking two hours. We'd go for two hour walks because it would get me outside. It would get the sun on my skin. It would make me feel like I was engaging with people, just like waving to somebody that was walking outside. And then I would start making myself like a really good coffee and going on a walk. And then it turned into, I'm going to listen to a podcast while I walk. Because now I feel like I'm having a conversation with my girlfriends. And all of those little, very small things that I was adding into my day got me thinking. Because I was still, I was actually working part-time. So I was, my mom would come over and watch him a couple days a week while I would head into work. And I knew I didn't love what I was doing anymore. It didn't make sense to me. I honestly just, it was crazy. I was in this career I absolutely loved had a baby, came back and thought, I hate this. I don't want to do this another second. And didn't know who I was, what I was doing. But I felt like, man, if I'm going through this, there is a sea of women out there going through this. And no one has been talking about it because I haven't heard about it. So like, I want to know more. And so these walks turned into like therapy for me. Honestly, they were just like, then I would start exploring and then I would learn more. I would like listen to another podcast and And I was like, I'm going to find more out about this. I went to a two-day training with Postpartum Support International. And I found out, wow, Asherina, you actually are having an experience that, you know, one in five women experience. And it has a name. You know, you are experiencing postpartum depression. You're experiencing postpartum anxiety. And you are not alone. But there are so many women that are not talking about this. So just got the wheels turning for me quite a bit. It did. What part of you was cognizant in the moment while you were in experiencing those dark moments that something was going on with you because of 
all of the studying and schooling you had done, was there any part of you that was like, oh, I recognize this um, or not? No, that's the scary part. I just kept, I actually remember myself saying this out loud. And now it's like a, a, a phrase I use in my practice repeatedly. But I kept telling Mark, I just don't feel like myself. It was this red flag I didn't know I was waving. And um, repeatedly, I would say that all the time. I just don't feel like myself. And he's like, I know, I, I can see that. I can see that you don't feel like yourself. And I didn't know much about it. And let me tell you what, you go through how many years of school, nine years of school, not once did we ever go over perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. Not once. It was not something we talked about. It was not a tract that you could specialize in. It was not even um, one of our elective courses you could take. So no, I had no training. And the, the craziest part to me is I had counseled so many women that were probably earlier in their postpartum experience and before I became a mom. Never even had the conversations with them. So those are like the, the scenarios that haunt me to this day is the moms that I counseled. And I, I mean, I offered evidence-based therapy and I tried giving them all the skills, but having the lens of the training and the, the personal and the life experience I've gone through, there's so much work to be done. There's so much work to be done on educating people on what the potential outcomes are and what can happen and what you can do. I actually remember, I think the first time I met you, I think you had like very recently quit your job and you were like, I'm doing this new thing and I'm going to be working with moms have just, um, you know, had a baby and postpartum. And I was thinking to myself, huh, like that, that all sounds interesting. Um, then I followed you on Instagram and you used to post these hilarious photos <laughs> that Mark and Roman were a part of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I started off and I actually didn't know where I was going to go with what I was doing. I honestly, I had a few ideas. I had a really serious conversation with Mark and it was like, I was at my job. I'd come home and I said, you know, I don't really want to do this anymore. I want, you know, I want to do these other things. I want to start my own blog. I want to write about, you know, incorporating mental health. I'm not sure what that's going to look like, but I'd like to do it. And I continued working for some time and he, one day he looked at me and he said, why don't you quit your job? And I thought like, are you giving me permission? You know, it was like, am I allowed to, you know, cause it felt like I needed someone to tell me like, do it. And he said that. And I like wrote my resignation letter. I submitted it and I gave them a month's notice. I was gone. And I was so scared. Cause I felt like he was betting on me. He was betting on me to do well. And I, honestly had this imposter syndrome where I felt like I'm, oh gosh, I really hope I don't end up back at the hospital. I just quit, you know, begging for my job back. Um, and I started with just some basic education on perinatal, obviously being fun. I did some very funny posts. I was the Roman mama back then. I shared like, oh, I thought was hilarious content. <laughs> They really were, honestly. They made me laugh every single time. <laughs> that's true. Like, yeah, if you had to describe me, sarcasm and jokes, that's probably like now who I am. Um, but, and I was starting to share 
educational pieces on perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. And what I found was these posts were getting the attention of so many people. And I'm talking hundreds. This is like I had, I had like nobody following me, but like my family, I joke, but it was like a few hundred people maybe. And um, the posts were really doing well. And I thought that's strange. You know, if I post a picture of me and my family, no matter how funny I think it is, it wasn't as popular, so to speak, as these educational pieces validating the, the difficulties that women go through in their postpartum experience. So I, I continued on for a while, kind of trying to balance humor and education. And then I decided, you know what, I am going to have to establish something. If it's going to be educational, it's going to be educational, but I'm going to have to go all in on this. And I did. And I, you know, I, now I'm this psyched mommy. That's all I shared. It was just to highlight that transition period that we go through, what we call matrescence, this transition from being, you know, an individual to this dyad and what that's like, all of the challenges that nobody talks about and highlighting those things. And I found that there is a definitely a need. And it's been very clear to me in doing this work that it's necessary. It is so necessary to share these stories and to share the experiences. Otherwise, we all feel like I did in those early days when I felt like the world was coming down on me and I was all alone. And I just don't want anybody to feel that way. What was the initial reaction? Like I know you said people were sharing your um, posts and they were they seemed to be circulating, but were people also contacting you and talking to you about their experiences? What was that like? Yes. Oh my goodness. So people, I remember I shared a, my, one of my first blog posts and I'm not joking. Uh, my inbox was full of women I knew. And it was actually my, my very first blog post I published was, um, and I still have it up on my blog. It's the seven, uh, seven myths of infertility, miscarriage, and loss. And I remember sharing that 20, 30, 40 women I knew contacted me and said, I, you know, this really mo was moving and I've experienced this. I've been experiencing, you know, miscarriage and thank you so much. Like it's brought me to tears and I, you know, it was very emotional for me. It was like, wow, okay. There are people out there that are reading this or need to hear this. And then I was getting more and more messages from people. And as my audience started to grow and it actually grew really fast for a period of time, I was kind of overwhelmed with the following that just, it was like, they were just there and they wanted more. They wanted to learn. They wanted to feel validated and seen. And that's what the comments and the messages and the emails were, you know, thank you so much for this work. I come here because I, I don't feel as alone when I read your words or, you know, I've never heard anybody say this or you put my thoughts into into words. And I, I've never been able to verbalize what my experience is. And I've actually taken so many um, screenshots of those messages to save because it serves as a reminder for me that this work is so important and that it matters and it's needed and it's necessary. So in the days when I feel like I'm in a funk and I think, you know, who's out there reading this? Who wants to know this? I go back and I remind myself like this is important work. All of that makes me both really sad and really happy. Um, mm -hmm. Really sad because you're right, nobody should feel that way. And really happy because people have found a resource that 
validates their experiences and, and helps them. I will often see people that I used to work with in San Francisco share your posts and I see you tagged on the content and it says psych mommy. And in my head, I'm thinking, oh my God, I know Asherina. And this person now knows Asherina because they're sharing her content. And it's, it's happened so many different times uh, with different people. And that's how like I knew your content was like getting around to people that are not just inside of like this circle that, you know, I know you through, or like you may know them through whatever communities you're a part of. I was wondering what it feels like for you when you see your content shared by so many different blogs and things like that. It's, it's shocking. It is. It's always really a surreal thing. And it's weird because it is weird. It's like sometimes like a really big publication will grab my post and share it. And I mean, it is, it's a strange place to be in sometimes. I mean, and then I, I do feel a sense of happiness and pride in myself because I know that I've worked really hard in trying to illustrate the experience of so many people. And I'm glad that it'll reach that many more people. So that's kind of how I think of it. It's like, it's a different kind of work because the work that I do, it's not like I'm I'm always trying to like sell something. It's like the more people see something that validates their experience, that many more people are freed from something that they don't necessarily have to go through. What are some of the most common struggles that you hear about? You talked about the identity crisis being one of them. What else? The identity crisis is really big. Um, One of the major things that comes up, and it's actually one of the most requested topics that we cover in, um, in the work that we do is how the relationship dynamics change and how um, feelings of resentment might present or even how things feel very unfair and unequally distributed. So that lends to that feeling of what we call as invisible load of motherhood where, you know, moms feel like they tend to, and this is not just their thoughts and feelings, this has actually been researched, but they shoulder Um, more of the child rearing and domestic duties and feel like this is, this doesn't feel fair. It doesn't feel good. So these are some of the things that come up probably in every single session and in every single encounter I have with new moms in particular that have been big. So I know that your whole job isn't just being on Instagram all day. So <laughs> what else do you do? <laughs> I am. Yes. That's what pe- I think that's what people think. I just like get online, share posts and get on my stories. So I do a number of things. I, so I do create content for Instagram. I, I write a lot of blogs. I have a private practice for teletherapy, which I have really pulled back on because that gets can be very overwhelming while trying to manage so many other things. And I also consult with quite a few different companies and do contract work where they ask me to be kind of like an educational liaison um, and helping them develop their content or their you know educational material where they need the input of somebody who has the expertise to discuss that. So I get to work with really cool brands, really cool companies. And I'm also working on a project and 
this is an early, very early infancy, but um, writing a book. So that is very early stages of production. (laughs) Those are just a few of the things that you also have these webinars that you sometimes host. Tell me about how you came up with the topics for those and what hosting those has been like for you. It has been amazing, electrifying, rewarding. Um, You take your work from one-on-one sessions and you think about like, how many hours do I have in a day? You know, it's like, I can only see so many clients before I'm feeling completely burned out. So I started putting together these workshops or webinars where the heavy hitters, the things that kept coming up, like relationship dynamics or anger for moms, especially postpartum rage, these things were showing up and were getting so much attention that I thought, well, if the post is offering maybe some education and some validation, how can I be of service? You know, what would be more helpful? And offering a workshop where you're diving into this topic, but you're offering tangible solutions and really educating parents in a, like in a deeper way where you can offer them the skill set and the tools they need and then offering it to them at a price point that's like an honestly well depending on where you're located like one fifth of one therapy session it was a just a no-brainer and it's had very a lot of success and a lot of great feedback from hosting those workshops can we go back to the partner dynamic and the invisible load of motherhood Yeah. You talked about what that means and how that shows up um, in terms of feelings of anger or resentment. What are some things that you talk to people about who might be going through this that are helpful um, for them to be able to work through it? Yeah. There's, I think the part that is very challenging is that a lot of the changes in the relationship dynamic are unexpected. There could be two people that get along fairly well, that have a solid relationship, and they bring home a baby and they are just blown away by the challenges. You know, why is this? Our relationship feels like everything is a struggle or it feels like I'm, you know, walking on eggshells around my partner. They, they don't support me. They don't validate me or they're not pitching in. And there's so many things that change. So it's, and this is not uncommon. So if you're familiar with the Gottman Institute, doctors, John, John and Julie Gottman have done extensive research on relationship dynamics. And what they have found is that after that, bringing home that first baby, that first year, 67% of couples report relational dissatisfaction, meaning they're just not happy because so much has changed. We just take this, you know, there's partner relationship. We've added a third party. This third party has needs. They have, you know, needs that are all day long and it's going to take away from that relationship. So what do we do? We work on continuing to communicate and really teaching partners to communicate effectively. And I think part of it is when we have learned, and I think this goes back to not even the work that I do, but like in, in our culture, in a certain culture, it's like, communicating with your partner might not be something that you observed growing up. It might not be something that, you know, you saw two people do effectively or bringing up conflict and trying to resolve it. So we teach people, you know, how do I bring up an actual need without placing blame or arguing or creating a tension in the relationship? So we do this in a way that feels good. 
And my biggest thing I tell partners all the time is you want to always send a message how you'd like to receive it. And if the words that come out of your mouth, if you heard them and they would sting, you probably don't want to share them that way. So we always aim to, you know, identify what our own needs are. Like, what is my positive need? And how am I going to express that? You know, like, how am I going to express this to my partner? We don't want to tell them what they're not doing right. We want to share what we actually need from them because that's productive and that's helpful. So we work on communication, but we also work on some of those unmet personal needs. Often we feel resentment towards our partner because we have needs for ourselves that are not being met. Like maybe they're going out and they're getting to do something to take care of themselves. Well, it's not that I'm mad at you because you're taking care of yourself. I'm actually mad that I'm not getting to take care of myself. And we have to figure out what it is about these feelings that I'm having. We have to do some exploration and some digging to figure out what do I need? Not, you know, what do I want them to do or not want them to do? Or what are they doing wrong? Or why do they suck? Or I can't believe you. You know, what is it that I need? How am I communicating this with my partner? And obviously, like, I'm, I'm barely scratching the surface on the relationship dynamic. But there are so many things where we walk into this partnership. And um, historically, like I said before, women get defaulted into a lot of these roles. And culturally, women get defaulted into these roles. And that doesn't feel good when we get defaulted into a role and you're doing all of these things. The two of you have decided to have a child together. So sharing that load, dividing it up to where it feels fair. And I think this takes two open parties that are willing to accept that raising a child takes work of two people. And um, a great understanding of this is to know that things are never going to be 50, 50. So whoever says that scrap that idea, it is never going to be 50, 50. What is agreed upon is what feels fair. It's not about dividing things right down the middle. It's never going to happen. And there's going to be weeks where you're carrying 70% of the load. But if you've agreed on something, that's where you feel like you have more control or power in your life and you have a sense of agency. So that is incredibly important. I thought of two things. One is I was interviewing someone in a completely different context Um, He works in politics and he basically said that what would generally happen when he would bring uh, Assyrians into a meeting with like U.S. politicians, what would happen is they would like bang the table and say like, this is why everything is really wrong and this is why it's so sad, what's happening to our people. And there was never an ask. They never had prepared what they were willing the other what they wanted the other person to do and so they would walk away from that meeting with the other party having heard about all of the things that are wrong and feeling blame for them in some ways but not really knowing like what is it that you want me to do so i find that so fascinating because that works in every aspect of our lives (laughs) right like when in our lives are we compelled to change or help somebody when they berate us. You know, it's like, that doesn't usually work. I don't really feel good when someone puts me down. But when someone does ask me for something or reminds me why it's helpful to them when I do something, that's more encouraging, right? That is more compelling. And I think that we always have to think about it. Like, how would it feel if I received this? That's just the question I ask myself. I do this every day and I'm a psychologist. I'm like, oh, I could, you know, I could sharpen that up. I gotta, you know, I've gotta polish that one. That one didn't come out so smooth, but it's a skill. Yeah. I also thought of um, something else that I saw a while back about women 
in a relationship or like one of the partners in each relationship feeling like they're carrying all of the load and usually it being um, a woman who is responsible for like keeping track of the bills and keeping track of um, all the events that you have to go to, buying gifts for all the events that you have to go to, making sure you wrap them, making sure you know what there is to eat and planning hangouts with your family and friends. And I remember looking at that list and recognizing that like I do some of those things, but that there are some things on that list that I have never thought about because Mm -hmm. my husband will just handle those things. And it made me feel so good. Like, oh, nice. (laughs) You are really, you know, putting in the work here. Good job, Tony. (laughs) I I don't have to think about who we're going to hang out with because you're the extrovert and you've planned our (laughs) hangouts with all of our friends. Um, But I can see that being true in motherhood too. Of course, you know, if the mom is the one breastfeeding, then she's in charge of the feeding for, you know, most of the time. But what else is there on this list that the other partner could take off of um, her list so that it doesn't feel as unfair? We always talk about like the, the division of responsibilities. And I actually walk our clients, even in our workshop, we do this as an activity where if something is invisible, what do we need to do? We need to make it very visible. And so whatever the responsibilities are in your home, write them all down. That sounds crazy to a lot of people. But when you write it down and then when you start to divvy it up and say you put the names of, you know, what do I do versus what do you do? And if you get to see that right in front of you, it'll be very clear and apparent. Oh, wow. Okay. I do see that you're doing quite a bit more than me. And this culturally might not sit well with a lot of people. But you, you have to think about this. Like if you want to be with somebody where the two of you um, are living harmoniously, you're living and you want to be satisfied by your relationship. You want to feel good. You want to be connected and happy. And this is a, a marathon, right? It's not a sprint. It's very important to do that. And like I said, it's not about divvying things up in a way that is 50-50, but it's like, well, what do you, what do you, how can we make this feel good? How can we make this feel fair? Like, what can I take off your plate or what can I pass along to you? And if we don't do that, or if we don't ask, we're not going to get the answer. And if, for example, I have my own things and I, I do carry a majority of the load. I know it, but that's how my brain works. My husband's brain does not work like mine. He does not think of, you know, exploring school options locally. He does not think about, you know, he's kind of like, okay, when do we need to make this decision in two years? I'll figure that out the minute it gets here. And it's like, he, he's not wired like me. So there are things that we have to explain because we are not all hardwired the same way. And um, for one of the things I do, all of the things to prep Roman for school, for preschool. And I have to ask because I, I know that if I don't ask for my needs to be met, I can't anticipate that someone is going to read my mind. So I will say, can you take your first break from work and take him to school? And that, that right there, it is equal to me as prepping all of his food, getting his clothes ready, getting him you know, dressed, feeding him breakfast. It is equivalent in my mind. And it feels very fair to me. It might not like add up. It might not measure up 50-50 right against one another. But to me, it is one of the most helpful things that can be done every morning. And that's what I mean about talking and sometimes just asking like, Hey, can you do this? Obviously you're not like 
demanding people, but <laughs> asking is always worth it. I was having a conversation with a friend last week and she said to me, you know, being a mom is really hard to which I responded, of course it is. And she said, but it feels like my mom did not struggle with things the way that I do. Like, how was it so easy for her? And so we talked about how it probably wasn't, but that she like didn't have the language to talk about those struggles and how sometimes like those struggles that mom, like, you know, moms of our gener, our moms and the, their generation experience led to like experiences that we had as we grew up and like carried with ourselves. Do you ever wonder about that? Because it feels like Assyrian moms never complain about anything. Right. Yes. Do I wonder this all the time? I've actually asked my mom this. I've had these conversations with her. She actually, and, and there's a, this is so multifaceted. Like there's so many moving pieces to this because one, do I think that she's an accurate historian of her experience 36 years ago? No, I barely, <laughs> I don't think, I don't think I would take her, her recollection of last week, but like, I, so I think that there are some things that we lose. I've lost like those early memories. I, I mean, it's not very clear to me those early days postpartum. So do I think that she knows every single feeling that she experienced? No. Do I think there are some differences? Yes. I think that culturally what is acceptable to share has changed. So whatever feelings that she was feeling, she was forced to bury. Um, I think that depending on where your mom like was raised or where she grew up or where she, you know, brought children home. That makes a difference because different cultures do different things. And my mom describes, you know, an upbringing in Iraq where the village was present there. Like we, so we say consistently, you know, it takes a village and the village is nowhere to be found in Western civilizations. And in Iraq, like she describes they like the community was part of the child rearing. The community was there for one another. And we don't have that here. We have a very individualistic culture in America. And um, so there are definitely some challenges as it relates to that. There's also challenges on the pressures of parenting. We are, we are parenting in a time where everything is researched, studied, um, evaluated, criticized, and we need to do things to some specific standard. We have people that are showing us what they pack in their kids' lunch boxes. We have parents that are showing us all of the activities that they're doing with their kids. And now we have this, you know, ever-changing comparison trap of parenthood. And it's just parenting has become a very high-stress thing. And it wasn't back then. I will tell you that without a doubt. My mother-in-law says to me, and especially when we brought Roman home and we were like managing his nap times, his wake windows, his feedings. And she goes, gosh, you know, raising a child this day, these days is like a science experiment. You know, you are measuring everything. I didn't do that. And so I recognize that culturally so much is different. So much has changed for us. And fortunately and unfortunately, we have access to social media and we have access to a lot of things that we end up comparing ourselves to. So there are definitely challenges that our parents did not have, but I do, I think that they went through the same emotional experiences. Absolutely. They just probably, you know, had more of that grin and Barrett mentality of like, just push through this. 
you don't complain. You just do this with a grateful heart. Speaking of culturally um, relative experiences, um, can we talk about boundaries? I've noticed it's something that you have um, posted content about and boundaries in the Assyrian culture, culture feel hard, mostly because it sometimes doesn't feel like we have them. What are your thoughts on that and on setting boundaries, healthy boundaries that are helpful for people? Okay. So my response as a psychologist is that boundaries are essential. They are essential for our livelihood. They are essential for um, a healthy life, a productive life, a life that's full of joy and freedom. They provide freedom. And growing up in in Assyrian culture and in many cultures, it's not just Assyrian culture, it's Asian cultures, Hispanic cultures, many boundaries are seen as a form of disrespect. It's a way that we disrespect our elders and the people in our lives. And the myth that we have believed is that if we have boundaries, then, you know, we are disrespecting the people in our lives or there should be no boundaries as it relates to our family. And that couldn't be further from the truth. And in fact, We need boundaries, especially with our family members. And this feels really foreign and really uncomfortable because we are raised in a way where I didn't observe anybody setting good boundaries. I think that we are kind of raised in a way where we, and if we are going to kind of say no or decline or tell somebody that something isn't working for us, we almost need an excuse. We almost want to tell a white lie. We want to avoid conflict. So it's a very, it's confusing. As an adult trying to set, you know, you hear boundaries now all over social media, people are talking about it. There's books about it. And we're like, what? How do I do that? That feels really hard. And I think that there's a way to do this in a sensitive way to where we're not being offensive. We don't want to be offensive when we set our boundaries. There's a way to be firm, but also have tact and you know, not be um, abrasive. So, and I think once you, if you, the first thing that you have to do is recognize what are my boundaries and you'll know what they are because you'll know that when someone has crossed them, you don't feel good. That's like when that person shows up to your house without calling you or without telling you that they're going to be there, despite you saying, Hey, you really got to call before you show up. We're working or we're doing whatever. Or there's that person that will make a commentary about your weight or your body and doesn't feel good. And you'll know when a boundary is crossed because you will have this emotional experience that is telling you something is off. This feels unsafe. This doesn't feel good to me. And we practice. That's just the best way that you're going to get at it. And you'll at first you'll be doing all this like backpedaling of, you know, I don't, I don't mean to say this like that, but, and it'll sound like <laughs> you are really <laughs> barely going to get the words out there and you get better at it. And I've gotten progressively better at this. It's hardest with the people that are closest to us, with our parents, with our siblings, with our cl- close relatives that we feel like if I set this boundary, it's going to harm the relationship. And we have to remind them why, why we're doing it. You know, mom, I really, I care about you and I love you. I just can't have you come over without calling because it kind of disrupts our day. How about you come over and you want to make an offer? And that's the piece of boundary setting is that it doesn't have to be like shutting people down. It's telling them what your needs are. 
you know, I understand that you love me and you're, you're validating their experience. Like, mom, I know you want to do that. Dad, I know you want to do this because I know that you love me and you love our kids. I'm just throwing a random example. Um, right now we need some quiet time because we're having some trouble in the evening hours. So why don't we see about doing that on Saturday? That would work better for me. You practice, you describe your need, you share an alternative, but you are in control. And the more boundaries that you have in your life, you are modeling that to your children. You are changing the dynamics of, you know, generational cycles that have gone on before you that have been boundaryless. And a boundaryless life is a chaotic life. It's a chaotic life that's filled with resentment, bitterness, and less intimate relationships because you don't feel like you can have a close relationship without boundaries. You described boundaries as something that brings you freedom, which feels like an oxymoron because you're like, in some ways you're like building a wall, Um, Mm -hmm. but it makes so much sense that like you might be, but it's not that you're shutting everybody out. You just are creating more space for yourself um, and letting people in when it feels right to you. Yeah. Do you become the gatekeeper? You know, we talk about boundaries and obviously like it's an emotional thing, so we can't see it. But when we think about from that physical perspective of like, you have a fence around your yard, right? Or for most people, there is something that is protecting your space and you have a gate and ideally some stranger or some other person wouldn't just walk into your backyard without asking or without, you know, your permission. And because you would feel violated otherwise. And that's how our emotional boundaries work. If someone oversteps or they're doing something that doesn't feel good, or they're coming into your space and you know, you didn't invite them there, it's not going to feel good. And what's going to happen. And the reason why I say it, it provides freedom to have boundaries when we don't have them, it's not that you are, you know, okay, I'm not being disrespectful because I don't have boundaries. I'm going to let them do whatever I want. No, you're, you're hardening your heart towards that person. You're starting to have a negative feeling towards them. You're not sharing it with them. Your, your bitterness and resentment is brewing and you just don't tell them. And now there's actually more distance than there was if you would have just told them what you needed and what the boundary was to begin with. The other thing I wanted to ask you about was this. At some point, I remember messaging you and saying, you know, the thing I've noticed is that not just a lot of like friends that we have that are moms follow you and interact with your content. But I've noticed that a lot of my husband's friends um, follow your page. And it makes me so happy that they are also interested in this information, because it means they are interested in being better partners and fathers. What has your experience been with partners reaching out to you or just like no you noticing that they are paying attention to this content too. And it isn't just for moms. I have so many dads that message me and um, they often will ask me, is there a page like this for dads? But it really, so I created the page. It's psyched for me. It is, it is tailored for women and mothers. Um, I do share experiences of fathers from time to time, not as frequent, but it is incredible because I know that they're paying attention, but I also know that fathers go through it too. You know, one in 10, fathers experience postpartum depression. Well, that's like most of the studies that they've done. 10% of fathers will experience depressive symptoms postpartum. And they are at higher risk 
if the mother has also experienced a perinatal mood and anxiety disorder. But we won't see, you know, we think of depression as being weepy or tearful or crying. But what we find is that they might be more disconnected, aggressive. They might be into their hobbies or just feel like they are relying on addictive behaviors, just not themselves. And they will go through it too, but we'll see them as like, oh gosh, you know, he doesn't want to be a dad. And it's like, no, he's going through his own emotional experience. So we really do need to pay attention to fathers and the issues and transitions that they experience because they are very real. And there are the same supports that there are for mom, there are for, there are for dads. But I think it's reassuring to know that there's more awareness that's happening, but that there's more fathers out there that are willing to learn and grow and be involved. I always um, say that like the thing I notice with this, my generation and like the men who have gone on to become fathers is that they are different fathers than they experienced than, than the fathers that they experienced and that we all experienced, which also makes me really happy and sad because it means our mothers didn't get that kind of support but it's nice to break that generational cycle that you were talking about earlier too. For sure. We're seeing more present fathers now than we've ever seen. And I think it goes to like along a lot of things, you know, we're having more two parent um, working homes, two parents that are both working. We are seeing um, women also be more assertive and asking for their needs. And we also have men that have a desire. They have a desire to nurture their children, to be involved. And I think that families in general are seeing that we don't want to get buried in work. You know, not, we're seeing how detrimental it can be when a father is solely the provider and not also um, part of that nurturing experience of raising children because children need fathers. They need that fi- that male figure to be in their life and be present, not just somebody who's providing for them. Um, so I think that it's exciting and it's healing. And I think we will raise well-adjusted children because of it. So I'm, I'm excited to see <laughs> the evolution of culture and what happens. Me too. You talked about your mom talking about the village showing up. And yeah, that term, it takes a village gets thrown around so often. To what extent have you found that notion to be true for you? The village. Oh, that village. It really (laughs) was disappointing, partly because I had, I mean, I had a a unique situation. Um, I moved to Arizona and I feel like the people that I really, I call them like soul friends, I left behind. And I didn't have, there. I developed friendships here, but I don't feel like at the same, like the depth. So that was challenging for me. And I think that I could have done a better job of cultivating relationships and deepening those relationships along the way. But um, there were people that definitely showed up to provide meals for me. I was very thankful for that. The thing that I was missing, honestly, it might have not even been anything tangible, but somebody to show up and ask me how I was doing, you know, after that first few weeks, people kind of fall off the face of the earth and they forget that yes, a baby was born, but so was a mother. And she needs to be upheld. She needs support. She's going through a transition of her own. And um, we all need to be asked, but how are you doing? 
You know, I hear so much like, and I all the time, well, how is he doing? How was Roman doing? And I was like, you know, he's okay, but I've had better days. Like, that's what it felt like. And I would have really liked that emotional support. I was slightly disappointed in the village, but I, well, there's some work to be done. There's definitely some work to be done. Do you feel like that disappointment led to you cultivating a community online where people Absolutely. show up for each other in some ways? Oh my goodness. I was, you know, I used to try all these different things in my early days postpartum where I would take Roman to all these mommy and me places and the library and top town and all these little local places. And I found they were not for me. It was not for me and it was not what I needed. It was not what I desired. I wanted like people that were going to be okay with saying this is really hard and I didn't have to fake it. And I didn't, cause I was already barely holding myself together. I wanted somewhere, like I said, to unravel. I wanted somewhere where people were going to hold space for me and say, yep, <laughs> I, I know that feeling. And um, that's why I created this community because I felt like so much of the stuff that I was coming across was, and I'm not going to say it was inauthentic because maybe they were having a great time and they were doing just fine and that's what they needed, but it was not for me. And I felt like if somebody else was just like me, then that'd be great. There'd be two of us there, <laughs> but there's far more. So it's pretty cool. Um, did you watch this last season of The Handmaid's Tale? <laughs> I did. I did. I benched it. You know what I thought of when you said I wanted to go somewhere and have the space to say I'm not okay? That the, Those library scenes where <laughs> uh, they're sitting like yes. staring. That's what I thought of. <laughs> where they are letting it all out, right? Yeah. It is the unfiltered, yep. <laughs> raw truth. Yes. So I noticed... Uh, at some point, maybe last year, but you started doing this thing where you share somebody else's story on Friday. I have to tell you that most of those stories make me feel so emotional. I'm also just the very emotional person that cry over anything, but really they do. I also have to imagine that you get a lot of submissions and I wonder what it's like for you to be kind of the person who holds on to these stories and how do you decide which ones to share? It is a process. And thankfully I actually have somebody that helps me sort through these and find what's appropriate. And I try to avoid re-triggering people. So that is also something that I have to be very mindful of. But what I find the most fascinating is how thousands of women from all across the world could share an experience and it'd be so close. The words, it's like, those are my words. And it's like, this is such a universal experience. You know, it doesn't really matter where you're at, where you live, your circumstances, we can all feel so similar. So we try to choose the, the features that we know are going to speak to the, the parents in our audience. I've been overwhelmed by the the story submissions, what we get. It's... It reminds me of you saying in the beginning how you you are someone who loves to hear people's stories because that's exactly mm -hmm. what you're getting. Mm -hmm. I do. I really do. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing I was going to ask you is like you've done so many different projects. What has been one of the ones you are proudest of? If I'm being really honest, I've been I, like I have a hard time with that like acknowledging myself. But 
something that I am the most proud of. And I've reflected back on this. And I, I have a moment, like every once in a while, I'll be driving my car and I stop myself and I'm like, wow, I'm really the proudest of taking a chance on myself. It's been such a, an overwhelming feeling because, you know, a few years ago, if you would have told me that I would have developed a community of this many people and it would have the potential to impact so many people, I wouldn't believe you. I really wouldn't. I barely knew how to publish a story on Instagram. I had to Google how to do that. And I, I knew what I wanted. I knew the message, but I didn't know how I was going to get it out there. And I am so proud of myself because I was doing this with no help all by myself. I was managing my house, my son. I was doing this in between naps and at bedtime, staying up far too late. And on our walks together, I would voice document my ideas and I would think about how I was going to do this. And I navigated so many new things and I didn't, I'm not a tech savvy person. So I was like teaching myself all of these things with no time. It felt like, and that is probably the most proud. And I know like you'd expect something else to be maybe like that moment for me, but it was really like when I reflect back on like the humble beginnings of, I didn't know a thing and I didn't know how I was going to get my message out there. But the fact that I actually followed through and believed in myself, that's the, like, I'm so thankful that I didn't turn back and say, this is too, this is too hard. I'm done. It feels like you created your own kind of job, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> you created something where maybe something didn't exist. And I know there are other pages out there who might do similar things on different topics, but still every single one of those people does that very thing, right? Takes a chance on themselves and women are constantly battling imposter syndrome and like pushing through that and saying, no, I have something to say and I'm going to figure out how to say it to people because I think it's useful. It's a big deal. It, thank you. I, it feels like a very big deal. And yeah, I still, like I did create a job. It's like, I didn't think it would ever be anything more than me sharing a post or a blog, you know, and it's developed into a business and that can be overwhelming at times. <laughs> you also got to interview Mandy Moore, which like teenage Rhoda would like <laughs> die over. Like I have a friend who interviewed Mandy Moore. I literally bragged about that to my friend. It's like Mandy Moore did an interview with my friend Asherina. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yes. That was crazy. That was absolutely nuts. So when I was asked to do that, I had a lot of imposter syndrome because I'm a psychologist, but I'm not like a professional interviewer, like in that setting, right? I can interview people in the clinical setting, but to be like a host, I was like, this is, I'm not cut out for this. I didn't sleep for a few days leading up to it. I was so nervous. You know, Mark's always like my biggest cheerleader. And he's like, she is just a woman like you, you know that? she's got the same issues, struggles that you do. It's going to be just a conversation. You know, you are, do you know who you are? Like he was just building me up before this interview. And I thought, you're right. <laughs> of course, I need to believe in myself. But she was so awesome. She was uh, very easy to talk with. And I'm so thankful that she was honestly, so she was an open book. I was blown away by what she shared and how easy it was to talk with her. So that was a pretty big moment. 
for me. Mark is right because I watched it two days ago and honestly, it was so good. It was oh, so thank you. effortless and fun to watch and listen to. And yeah, it was really cute. And I'm surprised thank you. I'm like fangirling. I'm very proud of you for holding it together. <laughs> <laughs> right. I only had like two options. I was either going to just interview her and remain calm and normal or like pass out. So I thought I'm gonna hold it together. You, you chose wise. <laughs> Uh, Karina, the very last question we like to ask everyone who's on the podcast, as I think you know before, since you've done this one other time, is if you had one thing to say to all of our listeners from all over the world, what would it be? Oh, man. Since I know that there is like a diverse group of men and women that are listening, I will, I will go with the piece of advice that I always remind myself, and that's just bet on yourself, you know, really go all in on yourself. No one else is going to do it. It's just just so important to believe in yourself. And I know that the whole world is going to have like all of this feedback and noise. And sometimes we have to really silence that noise and figure out what we desire and what we want. And that's kind of like the story of today's, you know, this, my whole journey started off by trying to please other people. And when we really get to the root of what is it that I desire what is it that I want and make it happen? These little small things that we do every day that are going to get us moving in that direction. So bet on yourself. You will most likely shock yourself and surprise the world. So Asherina is such a radiating source of energy and warmth. And I hope what she had to say was helpful to you in some way. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts and share this episode and others with everyone you love. See you next Tuesday.